Romans chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Good morning. It is a pleasure to be here. I bring greetings from Walla Walla, uh, where it is dry and warm today. <laughs> um, as Jessica mentioned, I am the children and family pastor at the Walla Walla University Church. Franklin Jones, a humorist and journalist long ago, said, you can learn many things from children. How much patience you have, for instance. 
So the children teach me more, I'm sure, than I teach them. They are wonderful and joyful and challenging. And this morning, I'm going to ask you to participate with me in an activity that might bring to mind some of your childhood. And I ask that you will just um, shout out some answers. What did you want to be when you grew up? A missionary. Good. What else? Oh, oh, we've got, you're going to have to shout. I have hearing issues. They didn't want to be anything, Jay. I know, I know. Oh, man. They were just so open to the leading of the Spirit. That is so brilliant, Boulder. I'm excited. So, for real now, when you were little, like five, six years old, what did you want to be when you grew up? A doctor. Excellent. A teacher. A nurse. A football player. What else do we have? Uh, a microphone? No, you have to say it again. A fireman, not a microphone. Thank you. Yeah, okay. So we wanted to be a number of things when we grew up. And uh, I have a list of things. I asked some of the kids at my church this week, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they said an astronaut, an artist, and a doctor. They were very clear they wanted to be both at once. A basketball player, um, <clears throat> one of my favorite kids, a pirate. They, yeah, they're aspiring large. Uh, ballerina, a marine biologist, a video game designer, the ice cream man. <laughs> and one of my kids said, I keep telling my mom when I grow up, I just want to be a hot dog. There are many things that we want to be. And in Romans chapter 10, Paul is talking to a church with a dream that he has for what the church can be when it grows up into full maturity and into the perfection of the faith. And so as we get into Romans 10 this morning, I want to invite you, just pray with me again as we get started. God in heaven, thank you that this word that you have given us has power to change us and to change the world around us, to change the world through us. Thank you that that change has come because of Jesus Christ, and we here accept the good news that our Messiah has arrived, and we look forward to learning from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Enthusiasm is a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing. I have one week a year that is my favorite week of the year. We host what is called Vacation Bible Camp at Walla Walla University Church. We have five days from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. with 200 little kids where we talk about Jesus. We set up an entire camp. We share stories from the Bible. We go on field trips. We do amazing things. And these kids have enthusiasm oozing out their ears. Every pore of their body oozes enthusiasm. They are excited. They're joyful. They're eager to be participating. They really enjoy learning about God. Well, this year we had, uh, we had used the group program for our vacation Bible camp, and it was all about Jesus saving us and the possibility that no matter what happens, Jesus saves. And on day number one, we, we got stranded on an island. <sighs> 
we were shipwrecked on an island. And while we were there on the island, we met a, a crazy man named Jim. And he was on the island with us, and he, he set himself on fire. He got caught in a net. He did all sorts of crazy, crazy, crazy things. He found coconuts. He threw one at my face. It was an insane week. And the kids were just chewing up this understanding that no matter where they went, if they were shipwrecked, if they were in church, if they were at home, if they were at school, Jesus was there with them. And in the situations that can be the scariest for kids, Jesus was there with them. And Jesus had the potential to save them. One of my little guys, he's about six years old now, he went home that night and his big sister was trying to cajole him into staying in the room with her. Stay in here, sleep in here tonight, we'll have a sleepover, it'll be really fun, we could get snacks, you could stay over here, it'll be great, we'll sing songs, all of these sorts of things. And he was very determined that he was not staying. And she said to him as he walked out of her door, what will I do? I'll be so lonely. And he stopped and turned around and he said, when you're lonely, Jesus saves. <laughs> and he walked off to his room. Kids are enthusiastic. They are absolutely sponges for what we teach them. They watch what goes on around them and they absorb it and it's a beautiful thing. And Paul is writing to a group of people that he says, look, I know this gang of, group, this gang of people. They are fantastically enthusiastic. Read with me if you have your Bible. Romans chapter 10, would you? Romans chapter 10. The first thing he says, this group of people has my heart. My desire for them is that they would be saved. Dear brothers and sisters, beloved, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. The deepest desire that Paul had was for people who were not yet saved to be saved. And he says, I know this group. He continues in verse two. I know what enthusiasm they have for God. Some versions will say zeal, right? They can be very zealous. I know that they have this enthusiasm. They have grown in a culture that allows them to absorb God, to understand so many things about him. They understand the mystery. They understand the depth. They understand so many things about God, and they are passionate about God. They love him. They are absolutely enthusiastic about God. But like my little guy who went home, sometimes their understanding of God was a little off base. Right? He continues, but it is a misdirected enthusiasm. We can know God. We can know about God but how it's directed, our knowledge and understanding of God matters enormously. Because when I have a misguided zeal or a misguided enthusiasm, Charles Spurgeon says this, it's like living by doing and not by trusting. Because when I think, like the Jews of old did, that I know God well enough to know God, my enthusiasm can become wayward. They had a lot of knowledge about God, didn't they? 
They knew the Ten Commandments. They knew the temple ceremonies. They knew the sacrificial systems. They knew the hierarchy of the priest structure. They knew all of these sorts of things, and those were reflections of God to them. And somehow, in all the knowledge, they were missing God himself. To know about and to know is slightly different. I love that Paul, as the author of this chapter, is one who knows the difference. He has lived the life of enthusiasm, and he knew the things, right? He knew all of the rules and the the laws and the ideals of the Jewish culture. He knew them. In fact, he knew them so well that he was willing to kill other people so that they would know how well he knew the laws of the Jewish culture, right? Because Paul was once upon a time named Saul, And it wasn't until Saul had an encounter on a road to go and and arrest and kill Christians, it wasn't until he had that encounter that he realized my knowledge of God does not mean I actually know God. And he met God on that road. And he realized that his impassioned plea to save Israel was not because of their knowledge. It was because of the lack of relationship that they had. He says they are enthusiastic beyond belief. But they don't know God yet. And they're missing out on the wonder of a relationship. Because when you have enough rules, you're safe, right? We love rules. I grew up in an army household. My dad was in the military for 22 years. Whew. I can make a bed with those quarter-turned corners, no problem. I could say, sir, yes, sir. I can salute properly. My dad did drill and march for the Pathfinder team for years. I'm a good marcher. Although it took me a while to, turn, to learn my left from my right. So my dad used to make me carry a rock in my right hand, very heavy rock, so I wouldn't forget. We're good at rules. Rules make things easy. I don't have to guess if I know the rules. I don't have to try and understand something if I already know the rules. I just abide by the rules. And Paul says the rules are not enough. There's so much more. There's a rule of life and there's a rule of relationship. He says that having the rules of life that just keep you within a boundary will never allow you to live to the capacity God wants you to live to. Never, not once. When Paul writes this, he knows who he's writing about because he's writing about himself. He had the knowledge but he was missing God. Now, as I was writing this sermon, an announcement came out from the general conference of Seventh-day Adventists, and I gotta tell you, it set my teeth on edge because it said, we're going to start checking to see if you're living by the right rules. We're gonna start 
we're gonna set a group of committees together that are gonna evaluate if you are Adventist enough. If you agree with us enough on certain issues, LGBTQ issues, creation issues, diet issues, different things, church policy. And I gotta tell you, it broke my heart because Paul, Paul could have written this to us today. We have the enthusiasm, but it's misguided. Anytime that an organization says, if only you will follow these rules, you can be saved, we've missed God. I love being a Protestant Christian that says in, that our belief in Protestantism is that we believe that our connection is one-on-one -on -one with God. And the rules that he had and has are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And as I follow Jesus Christ, I will be like him. Because there is no rule that purifies my heart. There is no rule that will purify my mind. It is the spirit of God on fire in my life that changes me. So when Paul writes, he says, be careful that you're not setting rules for yourself or for others and telling them they cannot be saved based on the rules. Salvation comes through Jesus Christ. There is a, an old theology called last generation theology. Perhaps some of you have heard of it. It is the idea that before Jesus returns to this earth to take us to a perfect place and to bring us back to a perfected earth, that there will be a group of people who are perfect, who are sin-free, who are obedient to God, full stop. Japheth, in honor of you, full stop, right? that there will be a group of people who are perfectly adherent to the law of God. If that were true, there would have been no need for Jesus Christ to come. Jesus Christ is the reason that eternity is open to us by grace. If it was the law alone that could have gotten us to heaven, surely, someone would have been able to obey it enough. David, the man after God's own heart. Saul, another man after God's own heart. Daniel, right? We've got example after example after example of wonderful people here in this book. And yet, Jesus was still necessary according to the dictates of God. So if I think there will be a perfect group of people who will be ready to ascend to heaven and cause Jesus' return, then I have negated the entire gift of salvation. Because all of a sudden, what I'm trying to do is to earn salvation, right? And that means that no matter what I do, I could, I could, uh, I could be vegan, I could only drink green teas, herbal teas, 
right? I could know exactly what haystacks are. I could know the prophecies, the 2300 days. I know what 1844 is. I know the 70 years. I know all of these things. But it is not knowledge that saves us. It is not knowledge that will save us. And I cannot be perfect enough to earn heaven. You see, Jesus threw open the gates of heaven with his sacrifice on the cross, and God welcomed us all in with his resurrection. And he says, the rules are there as a guidepost to Jesus. They are not there as a measuring stick. I've worked with young adults and children for a long time now. And one Sabbath, I was in the lobby of one of my churches far, far away, long, long ago. And one of my kids, about 14 years old, came traipsing through the front door, big floppy tennis shoes with the laces untied, like holes in his jeans, wearing a black Def Leppard shirt, and angry, <laughs> like angry. Plainly, someone had made him get out of bed and come to church, and he was not thrilled to be there. And so he was doing the schlump, right? Right, the schlump walk. Like, I'm just mad, and I'm going to hunch over, and I'm going to pout, and I'm going to look angry, and I'm going to be mad. <clears throat> and, um, and I love it when they come to church like that. I love it, because you know why they're in church? They're in church, and that means I get to see them and love on them and hug them and harass them and give them candy, all of the wonderful things that you get to do. Well, one of my dear greeters intercepted him before I got to him, and the dear greeter said, you know we don't come to church dressed like that. <gasps> do you hear the rule? Do you hear the rule that was placed on that young man? It was, you're not acceptable here because you're not dressed the way that we think you should be dressed. So go, get out until you're ready to come back. And when you can live to our standard, you'll be welcome with open arms. The truth is, Jesus said, you will never reach the standard, but you are welcome with open arms. Come and meet me. Come and encounter me. And when Paul is writing this, he's saying, I know that you're not going to reach the standard. But the standard will lead you to the one who has reached eternity. And that is all you need. Now, now does this mean that anything goes? Let's look at the other side of the argument, right? I can be completely rigid, legalistic, some people will say, and have a million and one rules, and if you don't live up to them, out you go. Well, does that mean anything goes? I can do absolutely anything and I should be welcomed anywhere? No. That's not what it means. Because let's be honest. Ain't nobody got time for a Christian who's not nice. Or kind. Or patient. Or willing to ask for forgiveness when they make a giant mistake. Right? There are standards but the standards are revealed in Galatians, aren't they? Galatians 5, 22 and 23, right? Love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There's no law against these things, but those are the rules that we can aspire to. The character of Christ lived out in us. There's a fantastic book, Parents, and for those of you who aren't parents, I'd recommend you getting it. It's written by Jennifer Grant, and it's called Maybe God is Like That Too. It's a children's book. I say that with air quotes, A, because air quotes are still cool, but also because I find that some of the deepest lessons about God are taught in children's literature. And it's a fantastic book about how we see God's spirit on the move around us. Go get it, read it. Because anything doesn't go, right? There's still going to be a standard of civility. There's also a standard of forgiveness. A standard of respect. A standard of honor. In the summers of high school, I worked various odd jobs. And one odd job I had was working at a florist shop. She also sold home decor and those sorts of things. And I, I was basically a failure in the florist shop. So she uh, rele relegated me, the floral designs were not Good. Um, so she relegated me to the back rooms of her shop, which was fine and fair. And uh, I was the unpacker and restocker and the finder of things and the price labeler. And I did all of the behind the scenes things. No touching of the flowers was allowed. And uh, <clears throat> one day she got a box of things in and one of them was about yay high and looked like a, a ballerina mannequin. No head, you know the, form, the forms that uh, seamstresses and tailors use to make gowns and suits. It was a form and it had a big tutu on it. And if you took it out of the box, one of them, they were all nice and ramrod straight except for one. And the ballerina had a bit of a crook. And I was like, don't worry, I can fix that. So I pulled it out and I started wiggling. She's like, wait, 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 you don't know. Clunk. I snapped the base off of the mannequin. And I was like, oh. Um, and the first words that came out of my mouth were, that wasn't made very well, was it? Not, oops, I broke it, totally my fault. It was me. <laughs> I'm standing there with two pieces in my hand. There's no question who did it. And the first thing that came out of my mouth was that wasn't very well made. The truth is, is when, when we make mistakes, it's okay to accept responsibility and to take the blame, right? There's a book, it's written by two social psychologists, Carol Tavris and Elliot Aronson. It's called Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me. It's an excellent book, right? And I would recommend it for every Christian who's out there because it talks about the idea that we live in community and we'll see things go wrong, but we don't take acceptance when we've made the mistake and we're not good at giving forgiveness to others because we want them to suffer. 
It's a very interesting book. And as we look at community as a whole, as Paul is talking about the Jewish community, the Gentile community, and the Christian community, he's saying there is one thing that brings both of those communities together. It's not rules. It's not eternity. It's not heaven or hell. Those things don't draw that community together. There is one thing that draws the community together, and that is Jesus Christ. He is what brings us together. It's okay to be wrong, but when we are, we need to be able to say we were wrong, and we'd like to head a different way. We've got a divided church, Jews and Gentiles, We've got a divided church, Adventists and real Adventists. Postum drinkers and coffee drinkers. Vegans and carnivores. We have a divided church because our focus has been removed from the one who brings us together. And suddenly when I'm looking at Jesus Christ, and I look at myself, I see the errors that I bear that I can't fix. I know I have a hot temper, I have a quick tongue. I have things that I need God to work on for me. I don't have time suddenly to look at you and condemn. In verses 14 and 15 of Romans chapter 10, read with me if you will. This is one of the greatest privileges of knowing that Jesus Christ has died and risen again for me. Can they, these who do not know Jesus, can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? This is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. Family, beloved, you got beautiful feet because Jesus has called you to take the good news that it's not about living up to an impossible standard. It is about living with Jesus that opens the gates of eternity for all of us. St. Francis of Assisi once said, always preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. But today we have the privilege of carrying a Jesus who loves us beyond measure, beyond word, beyond shadow and beyond doubt. We have that privilege of carrying him to a world in need that thinks they know all they need to know. And we get to offer salvation through Jesus Christ. How beautiful are your feet. Amen.